Before we start, I have a, a unintended perfect object lesson for this morning's sermon. If you noticed, the sermon titles Godless Religion, but on your bulletin it says Godless Worship. We try to be perfect around here at Renaissance Christian Church, but it actually goes well with the message this morning, which is why in God's foreknowledge, maybe he, he provided it this way, because does it really matter what words you use? Worship and religion tend to be, you know, they could be intermingled and in meaning the same thing. It's not so much in the presentation or the word, but it is in the heart. Amen? This morning we'll see that as we look at our text this morning. So turn with me to Isaiah, and we're going to look at verses 10 through 20. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord God, once again, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your love towards us as we as we sung and worshiped you this morning. I pray that we would realize how you love us, the depths of your love. I pray that as we read through your word this morning, that you would reveal that to each and every heart this morning and you would transform us. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, again, the title of this morning's sermon is Godless Religion. And I do like the quote in your bulletin, if you still have your bulletin. Look at that quote in there by Thomas Adams. It says, it is a poor worship to move our hats and not our hearts. The same thought, right? Coming into worship, or at least back in you know the olden times, maybe some people still remove their hats when they come into a building. And more specifically, in a place of worship, I've never really found why that was. But the point being is some people are worried so much about the exterior and removing their hat, whether it says worship or religion, and not so much about having their hearts moved. And this morning, again, as I mentioned earlier, the text is going to address that. But before we get into that, let me ask a few questions of you, and I want you guys to think about this. Can attending church ever be a bad thing? Don't answer. Don't answer yet. (laughs) But think about that. Can it be bad to come to church? Can worshiping the Lord with your song ever be a sinful thing? Can it be sinful this morning when we were singing to the Lord and praising him? Can Can that ever be considered sinful? How about this morning when you gave your offering? Can presenting God with your financial offering ever be a worthless gesture? And finally, can your prayers ever be offensive to God? Think about that again. Can attending church ever be a bad thing? Can worshiping the Lord with your song of praise ever be a sinful thing? Can presenting God with your financial offerings ever be a worthless gesture? And or can your prayers ever be offensive to God? Well, in verses one through nine that we mentioned last week, these were a general description of the sinfulness of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. During the prophetic ministry of Isaiah, if you remember in verse one of Isaiah, Isaiah said he was bringing the vision of the Lord that was real to him during the reign of these four kings. And we went through those four kings and talked about the different things that were going on at the time of their reign. And we saw last week how Judah was suffering the curses of the covenant because of their disobedience to God. 
So all the things that Isaiah mentions in verses 1 through 9 were these prophetic curses that were prophesied back in the first five books of the Old Testament to Israel if they were to disobey the Lord or be, break his covenant. And we saw finally that despite their disobedience, that God in his loving mercy and faithfulness to his covenant had left a remnant behind of his people. And God continued to provide a way of salvation for a few who were undeserving because they too had broken covenant with God. Again, but despite that, God offered salvation. So in this next section that we move into in verses 10 through 20, we're actually going to answer the questions that I asked a few minutes ago about worship and offering and prayer and attending church. Because God, through the prophet Isaiah, will point out Judah's godless religion or godless worship. Yet even during the midst of this great sin, we will see that God extends his gracious hand of mercy to those who would repent from their wicked ways. So now let's look at the text, starting in verse 10. And I'm going to just read verse 10 and talk about it and then move, move along. So verse 10 says this. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So let me stop right here and make a few observations about this verse that you can note. First of all, you see that God graciously calls out to his people again. Look at the very first line of verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Despite the sinfulness of the nation... God still calls out to them. And this is not the first time that he's done this, nor, if you know the stories of the Old Testament, this will not be the last time. Now, God doesn't have to send another warning. He sent many warnings before. And if you've read the books between now and you know as we studied the Ten Commandments, God sent prophets and warnings to his people how many times? Over and over and over and over and over and over, and over, and over, and over again. Warning after warning, God in his gracious, loving mercy and long-suffering sent prophets to the nation of Israel over and over again to warn them of the way that they were going. Again, how many times can you say, parents, that you've done that with your children? You've warned them over, and over, and over, and over and over and over and over and over, and continue to do that. Why? Because you love them. Because you want them to turn and come the right way. The same thing is true with God, with his covenant children, the nation of Israel. And he continues to do that. Some people think, well, when we look at the Old Testament, God seems so judgmental and wrathful. And we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's so loving and kind and forgiving. No, it's the same God. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Again, here's a clear example of God warning over and over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, there's one psalm I want to point you to. So turn back a couple of books in your Bible to the book of Psalms and look at Psalm 106. So go to Psalm 106. And in Psalm 106... It is a it's a recounting of the nation's Israel's continuous rebellion, despite God's graciousness to them. And specifically, we're going to look at verses 40 through 48. 
in verses 40 through 48, we're going to get a, a small recounting of the history of Israel. But then again, you're going to see God's gracious hand in the midst of Israel's continual disobedience. So look at verse 40 of Psalm 106. It says, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his inheritance. His inheritance was who? The nation Israel, his people. Then he gave them into the hand of the nation. So he's disciplining them by allowing another nation to come in and defeat them in whatever sense uh, in particular that the, the uh, psalmist is writing about. But in general, he allowed, God allowed this to happen. He gave them into the hand of the nations, and those who hated them ruled over them. So it's a picture of slavery. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were subdued under their power. Many times, here's that over and over and over and over again, many times he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel and so sank down in their iniquity. Again, if you read through the nation of Israel in the book of Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you will see that happening over and over again, where God delivers the nation of Israel, prospers them, and in their prosperity they forget about God. God sends judgment on them again. They're oppressed, subdued. They cry out to God, and God delivers them again. Again, I'm I'm trying to show you that God does this over and over again with his people. The God of the New Testament is the same God of the Old Testament. Let's read on. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry, and he remembered his covenant for their sake, and he relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. He also made them objects of compassion, in the presence of all their captors. You see what God did? God raises the nation of Israel up again. He looks at them with compassion, even in the midst of their turmoil and slavery. So he doesn't automatically just take them out of the, the hard time or the, the punishment that they're receiving. He looks at them with compassion, even in the midst of it. In verse 47, save us. This is the psalmist concluding. Save us, O Lord our God. And gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting, even to everlasting. And let the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. So you get a sense that the psalmist is writing this at a time of oppression. And he's reminding the nation of Israel that, hey, even though we are suffering, remember God's nature, who God is and what he does. If we cry out to the Lord, he will forgive us and restore us. And so going back to our text now in the book of Isaiah. We see again that God is calling out to his people. And God calls to his people and he calls out for them because of their irreverent and irreligious worship of him. Look at verses 10 through 15. Let's read this and then I'll come back and talk about it. So after he says, hear the the word of the Lord, look at what he calls his people. You rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And here's what they've done. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? Says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle 
and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hand in prayer, or your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. That's some heavy stuff that God is accusing. Well, he doesn't need to accuse. He knows what they have done. His own very covenant people love. And at the very beginning, look at what he calls the holy nation of Israel. Two words, Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember in verse 9 of last week, Isaiah said if, if it wasn't for God's graciousness and he wouldn't have left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. But here, through the prophet Isaiah, God calls his people Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if you remember, Sodom and Gomorrah, Gomorrah were destroyed for their wicked sinfulness that they continued to do in those cities. And the word Sodom and Gomorrah throughout the Old Testament becomes symbols of sin that's paraded around or sin that is allowed or boasted about. It's basically a rejection and disregard for what God has said because you want to live the way that you want to live, which is contrary to God's law. <clears throat> so you see what God's saying. It's like, you guys are so involved in sin that you're Sodom and Gomorrah, and you parade it around, and you're proud of it, you boast about it, and you have no shame in glorifying your sins. So let's move on. He calls them. He's trying to get their attention, right? He shakes them up to get their attention. Like, we're not Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, no, you are. You are Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, so their religious practices, just a quick overview, because in verses 10 through, uh, excuse me, 11 through 15, their religious practices are what they've been called to do in their covenant with God, right? They're called to bring sacrifices to God, and they're doing that. They were called to bring their offerings to God as well, and they were doing that. They were called to burn incense before God. They were doing that as well. And they were called to celebrate certain holy days and feasts. And so the nation of Israel, even though in the midst of all their sinfulness, they were continually doing these religious practices. But as I read earlier, you saw how God felt about them. God says again, let's cover it one more time. Uh, go, let's start again in verse 11. He says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? So the picture is the nation of Israel is offering sacrifices. They are multiplying sacrifices. They may be giving above and beyond what God has called them to give. But God says, what do they mean to me? Like these mean nothing to him. They don't mean anything. It doesn't matter how often you bring your sacrifices to me. They mean nothing. 
And we'll talk about why in a minute. As a matter of fact, they bring so much that God says, I've had enough. I've had enough of your burnt offerings. Stop bringing them to me. Right? The fat of the fed cattle, he says, I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. These are all the things that they were required to give to God, to present before God. And God says, I take no pleasure in them. Right? Don't we want God to delight in the praises of his people? Isn't that what Scripture says? But here he's telling us, I don't, I don't take delight in them. I don't take pleasure in them. Matter of fact, in verse 13, he says, don't bring your worthless offerings to me anymore. He would rather have his people not even come to the temple. Just stay away. As a matter of fact, he says, who requires, this is interesting, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? God is to delight in his people coming to, their, to the assembly to worship him, and he calls it trampling my courts. You are trampling my courts. There's a cross-reference that references in Jeremiah chapter 7, and Jesus quotes it as well, and he says of his people, you have turned my courts into a den of thieves because they're so corrupt that coming to the temple, God would rather you not even be there, he's telling his people. And he says, the incense is an abomination to me. Your new moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly verse 13 again is is one of the key verses to what's going on they come to these solemn assemblies it's supposed to be a holy thing when god's people come before him and they are have iniquity in their life a total contradiction remember that as we move forward in verse 14 god says i hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts could you imagine being told that right now, you or me, when we come into the house of God to worship, and he says, I hate, I hate this. I hate what you're doing. And there's no doubt, to be honest with you, that God says that to some people when they come into his house. And they offer these things to him. They offer praise. They offer sacrifices. They give their money to him. And these same things may be said to people around the world today. Matter of fact, God says they have become a burden to me and I am weary of bearing them. God is tired. Do you get the picture that God says, stop, just stop. It's, I can't take it anymore. I don't want to hear it anymore. It's like if somebody comes to you and they're pretending to be your friend in front of you, but behind your back, they're just, they're not your friend, whatever that may mean. It's like, stop faking it. Just get, don't even pretend to be my friend because you're not. And in essence, this is what God is saying to his people. And in verse 15, let's look at this one. Here's another uh, way that God looks at their worship. He says, so when you spread out your hands in prayer, so the picture is the people of God are coming, and they're praying just like this, maybe on the ground, face down, bowing to the ground and have their hands spread out, a total act of humility. And what does God say about it? I hide my eyes from you. Here's a person just humbling themselves before God, and God's hiding from them. Could you imagine that? God, you're praying to God, 
and he's not even he's hiding from you. He says, I will not listen, even though you multiply your prayers. I will not listen, he says. And here's the reason why. Look at verse 15, the last sentence. Your hands are covered with blood. That's the iniquity. You have all this iniquity on you. He's telling the nation of Israel, specifically Judah. And you come to my house and offer all these religious things. But yet you live in such a way that there's iniquity and your hands are covered with blood. God's turned away from his people in the uh, book of Numbers. God looking upon his people or having his face towards them is really a blessing. And it's a prayer that God tells Moses to pray or sing over Aaron. And I want to show that with you in the book of Numbers. Look at chapter six. So turn there with me. Numbers chapter six. Look at verse twenty four and twenty six. Because God is telling Moses to sing this over Aaron. When God's face is upon you, that's a symbol of favor. And so here in Isaiah, God is turned his, he's hiding his face from Israel. His favor is no longer on the nation Israel. And I think we may sing this once in a while. I know I've, my kids probably remember this. And they had to listen to my bad singing when I would sing this over them as I put them to bed. I don't do it anymore because Josiah is 16 and Alyssa is 18. They'd be like, Dad, that's kind of weird. But I would if they would let me. Um, And it says this. I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to read it. Verse 24 says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So, again, Moses was instructed to sing this over uh, Aaron, showing that God's favor is upon them, that God's face is looking at you, right? He's going to bless you. He's going to shine upon you. And he's going to lift his countenance upon you. So here in Isaiah, God is saying, I'm turning my face from you. I'm no longer listening. I'm hiding my face from you. It's a sign that God has withdrawn his divine favor from his people. Again, why? Because they endure, he's tired of their sinfulness. He's tired of their hypocrisy. He's tired of their godless religion. They're going through all this religious practice. They're worshiping. They're praying. They're celebrating holy days and feast days. They're giving sacrifices. They're bringing their tithes and offerings to God on one hand. But on the other hand, Remember what we talked about last week, all the sins that they were involved in. They were worshiping in the high places, the gods of the land that they lived in. One king was sacrificing his own children and having them killed. This is not to be among God's people. So God is laying down that you guys are like Sodom and Gomorrah because you don't even hide the sin anymore. You just parade it around like it's okay. And we're to all to accept this. And that is not true. Basically, they don't live a life pleasing to the God that they claim to worship. A good summary verse of this is found later in the book of Isaiah. Turn with me to chapter 29. Look at chapter 29, specifically verse, I think it's 13. Isaiah 29, 13 says this. And it's a good summary of all that was just said. 
you may remember this when Jesus quotes this verse to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who also were like ancient Israel, and says this. The Lord said, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of traditional learn a tradition learned by rote. And if you're like me, like, what does rote mean? I had to look that up. Uh, sorry, that's not a word that we use every day in, in English, right? Well, rote, it's very interesting. Let me find it. I had to type it out here. Rote means a mechanical or habitual repetition of something learned. It's the act of repeating over and over without attention to meaning. Like when you probably learned your ABCs. We could all do our ABCs. I'm not going to have us do it. Don't worry. You learn those by rote, by just saying it over and over again. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? You could do the little song. Or your multiplication, one times one is one, one times two, it's like that. That's learning by rote. The point being is that the nation of Israel learned their worship, their giving, their incense. They've learned it by rote. It was their tradition. And they did it with no meaning, and they did it without thought. That was the problem with the nation of Israel. They didn't really think about what they were doing. They were like, this is what we are supposed to do. We're Israel. We're supposed to bring our tithes and offerings to the temple of God. We're supposed to celebrate these holy days. And they really did not think about all the meaning behind it. And so that's the picture that Isaiah paints of the nation Israel. This is the sad state that they are in at this time. But thankfully, as I mentioned at the beginning, God is gracious and merciful towards his people. Look at what Isaiah continues to say. Look at verse 16 now. He says this, Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. So again, God could have and would have been justified to have destroyed and wiped out Judah at that point. Right? He had already sent warning after warning after warning. They did not listen. He saved them, and they still do not listen. But God, again, being a gracious and loving God, which is his nature, and it's which is who he is, he says this, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil. So here in this first section, God is telling them individually to a man, you guys are supposed to, you can, doesn't have to be like this. It doesn't have to remain this way. Instead, wash yourselves, make yourself clean, remove these evil deeds from you that I've just spelled out and laid out before you, and stop doing them. So individual reform needs to take place in Judah. But not only that, then he talks about the social reform that needs to take place throughout the entire nation. Look at verse 17. He says, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, Defend the orphan and plead for the widow. So not only must it take place on a, a reform needs to take place on the individual level. He wants the entire congregation social reform to take place. The same is true in the church of God, isn't it? God wants each and every one of us because we are the Holy. We have the Holy Spirit of God to be individually reformed. But then the church collectively also is to be cleansed and clean. 
and to remove any forms of remove any form of sin outside of the church. I don't believe that it is our first responsibility to go outside the world and reform the governments and all that. I believe it, that reformation starts here within the church, individually, then collectively, and then we'll see what God does. So it is when sin is tolerated in the church, when we parade sin within the church, we could be called Sodom and Gomorrah. When we start taking the practices of the world and start praising them and parading them inside the church, which some churches are doing, even traditionally uh, real evangelical churches, Protestant churches, are now parading the sins of this world to be accepted within the church, I believe that these same woes or condemnations are going to happen with inside those churches if God does not relent on them. And it could happen here in our church as well. It doesn't need to be sins of the world. <clears throat> so what is God's solution? How does God provide these things? How are we to wash ourselves? Or how specifically... In this context, is a nation of Israel supposed to cleanse themselves from all the evil that they're doing? Look at verse 18. Isaiah says this, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So God's provision for his people are this. Hey, they need to come to him. Because hopefully that they realize, hey, we can't wash ourselves of our sins. We can't stop doing these things, right? They're, we're, too, we're, we're overwhelmed and we're tempted by all the nations around us and we're behaving like them. I mean, we need some divine intervention. And that's why Isaiah says, come now and let us reason Together, says the Lord. God is offering this to his people. He says, you know what? So it's kind of like God's sitting you down, sitting the nation of Israel down, saying, you know what? Right now, all your sins are like scarlet. You have blood on your hands, but you know what? I can wash them away. I can take them away. This is the reasoning, the, you know, for lack of a better word, the bartering going on between God and the nation of Israel. This is what God has brought. I can cleanse you from your sins. I can make them as white as snow. And what is the nation of Israel's responsibility? Well, it's found in verse 19. If you consent, which means to willingly uh, agree or give permission, so to speak, to come willingly, if you willingly consent to these terms and you obey, look at what will happen. You will eat the best of the land. The nation of Israel's covenant promise was that if you follow God and he is your God, that he will provide the best of the land. So Isaiah is reminding them of the covenant promises of God. Hey, if you consent, meaning you willingly consent and you obey the Lord, this is what will happen. This is the good. Even in the midst of their sin, even though they are called Sodom and Gomorrah, God is telling them, you know what? This is what will happen. I will bring you out of that. I will save you. I will transform you. But the opposite is true as well. Look at verse 20. But if you refuse, 
if you refuse this offer that God is offering to them, if you refuse God's gracious, gracious hand of mercy and you rebel, what's going to happen? You will be devoured by the sword, meaning God's going to send in another nation and going to conquer you. And just in case you didn't think it was true, the prophet Isaiah says, truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. For emphasis, this is what God says. This is what God has told the nation of Israel and again, specifically Judah. So God has provided a way for his people to be kind of uh, recovenanted with him if they consent and obey. So, So as we look back on this godless religion of the nation of Judah, it should also give us pause to examine our own religion. Because each and every one of us in this room this morning has a quote-unquote religion of some sort. Or we practice, your being in here this morning is practicing a religious duty of some sort. You were worshiping this morning. You gave offering, you prayed, you joined in in prayer. All those things are religious practices. And I want us, each and every one of us, to examine that in our own hearts. The Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians said exactly this. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, he says this. In speaking to the church at Corinth, He says, test yourselves. He's speaking to a church, just like I'm speaking to the church this morning. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. And I'm going to ask that we do that this morning. Test yourself. Are you really in the faith? Now, we're no longer talking about the nation of Israel. Now we're bringing it home to each and every one of us. I cannot answer this question for you. Only each and every one of you can answer it. Your mom or dad can't answer it for you if you're here with them. And your kids can't answer it for you. Your friend, your spouse, your neighbor. None of us can answer that for each other. We can see the external religious practices and maybe gauge, you know, yeah, they're probably saved. But I'm going to ask that each and every one of you examine it for yourself, just as the Apostle Paul said. So let me ask you this. Why do you worship God this morning? Why do you worship God this morning? Is it because you learned it by rote? Meaning, we've just always done this. My mom and dad have brought me to church since I was a little kid. This is what I do on Sunday. Is it your family tradition? You know, hey, we always go to church Sunday morning, and then afterwards, you know, we do some other thing. And again, those aren't bad things, the, the actual act, but it's the heart. Remember, I started this morning by saying, it's, is it religious worship or religious practice? Sorry, Izzy or Jessica, whoever's standing there. <laughs> Why do you worship God this morning? Is it that family tradition? This is what we're supposed to do. We're good Americans. This is what we do. We come to church. If that's the only reason you come to church, then maybe God would say to some of you, why do you trample my courts this morning? That would be an answer to the first question I posed to you this morning. Is it ever a bad thing to come to church? 
Well, if you come for the wrong reason. Now, I'm not saying, let me back up a second, that coming to church, that you should, hey, mom, I'm not coming to church anymore because I don't really want to come. No. If you live in your mom and dad's house, then you do what mom and dad said. (laughs) Right? When you live on your own, then you can do what you want. At least that's what my dad always told me. Right? It's a family tradition. But again, each and every one of you have to answer for yourselves. Because guess what? Each and every one of you will stand before God by yourself. I won't be holding my children's hands when they stand before God. Why do you worship God this morning? Maybe you come to church because, you know what, I hope that I'm going to receive a blessing from God. If you come to church, good things are going to happen. Some people will be teaching from the pulpit. If you give to God, then God's going to give back to you, right? If you give $2, God will give you $200. Test God, people will say. You know, so some people come to church for that reason. And I ask you this morning, it may not be monetarily, but you may be coming to church because you're hoping, you know what, if I come to church, then God's going to do something good for me. That's not the reason you should come to churches either. Well, what about, hey, it's, it's just a good thing, right? It's good to come to church. It's good, wholesome. You know, it's better than uh, staying home and watching football or soccer or whatever. The, it's soccer right now, but we were watching it in there, by the way. It's over. I won't tell you who won. Right? Maybe some of you say, you know what, it's, it's better to come to church than to do that, right? I would say, yeah. But again, in your heart, God truly sees your heart. God would probably say, you know, you should probably just go watch football if that's more important. Or some sporting event. Or be at some sporting event if that's more important than me. Right? It's like you're only here because that's not on. Is that what's going on in your life? You know, some people come to church if there's nothing else going on. You know, I I have a free day. I guess I'll come to church. Is that why people come to church? Because they have a free day. They have a free moment to give God. You're trampling the church of God. You're trampling his courts. You don't truly want to be here, but there's nothing else going on, so I, I might as well come to church. Again, why do you worship God this morning? The real reason we should come to church, and this is probably I could name a bunch of them, but it's because you love him. You, couldn't, you don't want to be anywhere else. We sung about it, oh, how he loves us, right? Grace, his grace he bestows on us as big as an ocean. I would say the least that you could do is come to church. When you truly realize and understand what God has done for you, you can't help but come to church to worship him. Yeah, yeah, you can worship him Monday through Saturday too, But we are called as a body of believers to gather together and proclaim the praises of him who is the king of all the universe. That's something we should desire to do every Sunday to come to church. But I know there's things that prohibit us. You know, next week I'll be on vacation, so I won't be here. Our other two pastors are on vacation today, but it's not their habit, right? They're not like, well, you know, today I have a freedom. I think I'm going to, you know. Go to Disneyland or go to the beach or whatever it is. They're going to be here in church worshiping the Lord their God. All those things are there afterwards as well. Again, God is saying, look what I've done for you. I've given you so much. 
He's telling the nation of Israel this. And again, he's telling each and every one of this, each and every one of us as well. Examine yourself. Why are you here this morning? Hopefully it's for the route, the right reason. You know what the good thing is, though, even in the midst of our irreligious worship, because sometimes, you know, I'll be honest with you, there was a song there and I came to the end of the song and I was like, what the how did I get here? Has anybody ever done that besides me? where their mind kind of floats off. And I felt bad about it because I was saying, singing some very profound things, but there was no heart in it. It's like, wow, I didn't even realize that. And I felt bad because I loved that song. I love all the sayings of it. But that can so easily happen in our world. We get so easily distracted in our life. But you know what the great thing is? And I started to say this. Even in the midst of that, God offers salvation god offers forgiveness because he knows who we are god offers forgiveness to a sinful people just like he did to the nation of israel even in the midst of them worshiping other gods i I highly doubt that any of you have an idol in your house that you're bowing down and worshiping I highly doubt any of you have offered your children as a sacrifice to a foreign God. But the nation of Israel did that. And even in the midst of those heinous sins, God provided forgiveness for them. And he still provides forgiveness for each and every one of us. Well, how does he do that? The same way he did with Israel in Isaiah chapter 1. God calls us. To turn to him. He says, reason with me. Come, let us reason. Come to me. Right? Come to God. God calls us to turn to him. Secondly, he calls us to live in obedience to him. So consent. Willingly come to God. If you have not done that this morning, my prayer is that you would do that. Maybe you see yourself as, you know what? I don't really come to church for the right reason. It it might be one of those other reasons. I don't really know who God is. I know about him. I know the religious traditions, but I don't really know him deep down inside my heart. I give him lip service. I give him money. I give him worship, but it's not heartfelt. I would say this morning that you would willingly turn and come to him. Secondly, that you would live in obedience to him. Because again, the nation of Israel was to consent to come. And the evidence of their salvation was that they lived in obedience to him. It's not that obedience brings about salvation, but obedience is the result of salvation. Thirdly, if we do those things, God promises to bless those who consent and obey. Now that blessing will come in very different forms and shapes. And that's not, again, the reason that we come to him. That is a result of coming to him, that God will bless you. God will bless you, number one, by giving you forgiveness of your sins that you can receive nowhere else. God will bless you also by giving you eternal life. Those two things are enough. God owes us nothing else. If, any, if we get anything else, then that's just icing on the cake. But we don't come to him for those things. Those are a result of coming to him. On the flip side, just like he told the nation of Israel, if you refuse to come to the Lord and you continue to rebel, then you will be devoured by the judgment of God. God is merciful and God is also just. 
And each and every one of us this morning, depending on where we're at in our relationship and our walk with God or our non-existent walk with God, I want you to hear those words this morning. If you consent and obey, God will bless you with forgiveness and eternal life. If you refuse the Lord and you continue to rebel against him in your heart, even, you know, some business morning may be here, be part of this church, but in their heart, they know if they examine themselves, they don't truly believe. Or maybe if you're in full out rebellion, if you refuse the Lord and rebel, you will be devoured by the judgment of God unless you consent and obey. So I pray this morning that each and every one of us again examines ourselves and where we are in the faith. And I pray that each and every one of you honestly can say, I come here because I love the Lord. I have my faults and I have my sins, but I love the Lord and he's promised to forgive you. But if you're in that place where you know what? I'm really not in the faith. Then I would say this morning as we worship, there'll be a people in the back that would love to pray with you about that. Don't let this opportunity go by. And for those of you, again, that are, you know what, you can hear this and you said, you know what, I don't really care. I would just warn you that eventually your time will run out and you will be devoured by the judgment of God. That is the word of the Lord according to Isaiah. Let's pray. Lord God, this morning we again thank you for this time of worship. And even though, Lord God, we covered a very serious topic, it's a loving topic. Because we see your hand of mercy and your hand of grace extended to all mankind. Another warning to each and every one of us. That when we come to you. That we would truly examine our hearts. That we would examine our faith. To know whether we come to you out of tradition or out of obligation. Or because we love you. And I pray, Lord, that everyone again in this congregation this morning can say that they love you. And they might not truly understand all the religious significance of that, but in a sincere heart, they're here to worship you. And I pray that we would do that as we close this morning. And again, those this morning who don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would move upon their hearts and cause them to consent and obey. That is my prayer this morning, Lord. And we ask that you would just receive the rest of our worship this morning and that it would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, because of what you have done in our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.